Okay, so the Gospel of Mark, again, is the uh, story of, of Jesus, who, who he was, and what he did. Uh, two big questions that are all uh, about, or all, all focused on uh, Mark's writing of the Gospel are, are really two questions. Who is Jesus? And then when we know who Jesus is, what does it mean to follow him? And it's that second question that really gets the focus in our passage today. Last week, we, we saw uh, Mark really focus on the who is Jesus question by showing us a day in his life as a preacher in Galilee. And he preached. It wasn't the content that Mark wanted us to focus on in his preaching. It was the manner and the authority of his preaching that, that Mark wanted us to recognize. It is the authority of Jesus' preaching that made Jesus different from every other teacher that any person had ever heard, including ourselves. His authority was the authority that did not say like a prophet, thus says the Lord. His authority was, God said in the past, now I say to you, which is to say that Jesus was communicating his words with the same authority as the scriptures. And his authority to communicate scripture was anchored entirely in the words, I say to you. There's no extra appeal to authority. It's Jesus said this, and we take what Jesus said as God's word. So that is the authority that only one who is come in the flesh to reveal God to us could have. But he also shows that his authority is above all things when he casts out demons and when he heals diseases. All of these were to show us that the one who has all authority to make the promise to us that if you believe in me, you will be forgiven and have everlasting life has come. Now we go this week into the question, well, what does it mean to follow that one? What does it mean to follow that one? And that is, that is where the disciples come because the day is just finished when Jesus has taught all these people and done these miraculous things and now we see Peter wanting to uh, get Jesus to do more. And I think we have in this passage uh, really the dividing line between uh, what is the disciple that Jesus wants us to be and kind of the disciple that our heart wants to be. And so Peter represents kind of the default commitments of how we like to think about following Jesus. And they are, they are the commitments that are rampant in the church today. But Jesus calls us to a higher commitment when he calls us to be a disciple. And I think it is absolutely urgent that we hear Jesus' higher call to what it means to be a disciple, given the situation that we have in the world today. I don't think I'm probably sharing anything fresh with you, but the church in America is in some difficult times. There are some dark clouds over the church today. We, we have a, a sense that less and less people feel like they need anything to do with the church, that less and less people have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and less and less people feel like that really matters to their life. 
In fact, a Pew Research study that came out just last year kind of projects forward if the trend lines of losing faith in America continue, that in the next 30 years, we will be a nation where being a Christian is a definite minority. And if the trend lines actually go in the direction that people think they'll go, it will be about one in three people actually identify themselves as a Christian by the year 2070. So those numbers are plummeting. If you look at the, at the curve, I believe it was back in around 1960, 80% of the public would identify themselves as a Christian. And now we are seeing that number decrease rapidly. And if we, if we want to get into how many of those people who confess that they're following Christ are, are actually truly trusting in Christ, that number is probably even smaller than what the, the, the data shows. The reality of this data is happening right here in Lee Summit. The reason that we're planting a church is because there is actually strong evidence that Lee Summit is well uh, uh, on that curve of decline in spiritual uh, trust in, in the Lord. So if we look at the very next slide... This is a, a, a spiritual data from the area of Kansas City, and it, uh, it indicates that the area of Lee Summit is about 12% less connected to an evangelical church than other areas in the metropolitan area. So in, in Kansas City, Lee Summit is already ahead of other areas in terms of walking away from the Christian faith. In Lee Summit, only about 30% today say that they are connected to an evangelical church. So in a way, we already live in the future of that Pew Research study. That is why uh, we need to be taking seriously the call to be real disciple makers. There's a a quote from uh, Tim Chester who writes about evangelicalism in the uh, country of Britain, which Britain is also kind of uh, ahead of us in terms of their secularization. And he says this is the situation that is coming upon us. He says, the vast majority of unchurched and dechurched people would not turn to the church even if faced with difficult personal circumstances or in the event of national tragedies. It is not a question of improving the product of church meetings and evangelistic means events. It means reaching people apart from meetings and events. Do you see what what Chester is is saying to us? He is saying that as we become a post-Christian nation, the long-standing expectation that people will come to church is vanishing. The way that people are going to hear the good news of Jesus is, is not by responding to a brand new church or responding to a church down the street. They need to have the news taken to them. They need to have the news brought to them. So so what? Why why should we at Renew EPC have any sense of optimism starting a church when all of the trend lines are going in the wrong direction? The reason that we can have optimism is always because we are with the Lord, but the reason also that we should have optimism is that we are committed as a church to these core values. And one of our core values is that we are disciple-makers. And when we say that we are disciple-makers as a church, this is what we are saying, that we live by him and for him. We commit to being prayerful, authentic, 
and active witnesses for Christ in our lives. Together, we work to be a multiplying church. We're going to see that this core value is very much the core value that Jesus is instilling in his disciples here in our passage today. He wants his disciples to recognize what it means to be a disciple maker. And what he is going to take us through are three commitments required to be a disciple maker. We're going to see to be a disciple maker requires us to leave our default commitments and take on Christ's call. So this is going to mean first that we need to commit to being contenders, not consumers of the faith. If we want to be disciple makers, we need to commit to being contenders, not consumers of the faith. So the, the, the passage that we have, have read, Jesus just finished a remarkable day of teaching and ministry, right? He taught to, and, and impressed people. He cast out demons and impressed people, and he healed people of diseases and impressed people. And we're told that this great big crowd has started to follow Jesus with great interest with what he is able to do. And so Jesus actually stays up late into the night healing people of every sort of disease to show that he is the one that has the authority to restore life. But then finally everybody gets tired and they go to bed. Jesus goes to bed, but he sets his alarm extra early. We're told that he gets up before even the sun has risen to go into a very private, desolate place, and there he is going to pray. He is going to pray because after this day of public ministry, he needs to get away with the Lord to make sure that he himself does not lose his priority in why he has come. What is Jesus praying about? Once again, Mark doesn't give us a word of Jesus' prayer, but Mark does show us through his gospel that Jesus prays in only three particular places in the gospel of Mark. And I think it's important to look at those three places to recognize what he's probably doing in this prayer here. So, so this is his first time that Mark records him as pray, praying. Now, Jesus prayed all the time, but Mark focuses on three particular times of prayer in his presentation of the story of Jesus. And the first one is here after this very successful day of ministry. The second one happens in Mark 6.46 after Jesus feeds the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And then the third one is in the very last night of Jesus' life in Mark 14.35. And that's the prayer that he prays in Gethsemane. Now we all know that the prayer in Gethsemane is a time where Jesus has got great conflict in his soul because he is looking at the cross. He is looking at this next step of taking upon the sins of the world, being put upon a cross, and his flesh is terrified of that. And he prays at that time, if uh, you know, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. So what do we see in the prayer of Gethsemane? We see Jesus wrestling with the weight and the call of his mission that God has given him. Now, is that the same thing that is happening in the feeding of the 5,000? 
Well, if we read a, a parallel account of the reading of the, uh, the 5,000 in, in John 6.15, we are told that this is what happens after he feeds the 5,000. Uh, John 6.15 says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus withdrew to pray when he had this event that the people were trying to make him king. Now why would Jesus suddenly want to escape and pray when the people want to make him king? Because once again, he is being given a great dilemma, great pressure to leave the mission that God has given him to lay down his life and instead take the option of the people, which is be our king, live in glory, have the good life. And so Jesus again goes away to pray so that he remains fixed on the mission that God has given him, which is to save our souls through dying on the cross for us. So now if we look at the passage that we are, we are in right now, the first time Mark has Jesus pray, recognizing these are the only other times that he prays, could there be something similar happening in Jesus' life? Let's go back to what has just happened. He has amazed the crowds of Capernaum with his teaching, with his healing, and with his exorcisms. And they love it. They want to make him kind of the village celebrity. And so here we have Jesus experiencing the taste, the sweet taste of ministry success. And let me tell you, that's delicious. <laughs> and he has the option right in front of him of not going towards the painful path of the cross, but instead living his life in the celebrity role of a miracle worker. And so, what does he do? He pulls himself away from the crowd, and he prays. There is, there is a desire that, that could be in his heart, that Capernaum could be a safe hamlet, that he could live as a miracle worker. And being a miracle worker is to, is to be a person focused on consumers. Right? Miracle workers succeed and thrive by drawing consumers, people who want Jesus for something, for healing, those are consumers. And so Jesus has got this opportunity to be a consumer-driven miracle worker. Consumers are wants-driven. When we become focused on consumers, we focus our services, our programs, our activities so that people come in and take on the approach of a consumer. Do I like this better than this? Do I want this more than I want that? And that is the consumer mentality. And Jesus here is praying because he does not want to become a person who serves consumers. Jesus could have served consumers, but that would not bring the kingdom, right? Jesus could have stopped everything, had a wonderful life, serving consumers, 
being the most famous miracle worker we have ever seen. But that would, have not, that would not have brought the kingdom. The kingdom comes by making disciples who follow him. The kingdom comes by making disciples who follow him. And so here is the key point. Jesus did not come to make consumers. He came to make disciples. And that is what Jesus is praying about. He is contending in his heart that he remain focused on the mission of making disciples who follow him into bringing the kingdom and not falling back to just serving consumers. Jesus did not come to make consumers. He came to make disciples. So, how does Jesus make sure that he stays on mission? He contends in prayer. Right? He goes away to pray. And it is prayer, it is his commitment to prayer, not to listening to the needs of the crowd that helps him contend for the kingdom. We need to recognize that prayer is not about getting God to do our will, but helping us know and follow his will. So when we look at the, the only prayer that Mark records of Jesus in Mark 14, 36, the prayer in Gethsemane, what does he say? He says, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done but yours. I think we should expect that Jesus is having a similar prayer right here. Not my will be done, but yours. And so when we become contenders and not consumers, we follow the way of Jesus who fights the consumeristic desire, which is so tempting and so tantalizing in the modern church today, and instead commit ourselves to contending with prayer. We need to hear what it means to follow God, what it means to follow His will. We do not need to spend our time figuring out how to maximize the number of consumers that will come in our door. We need to maximize our effort to become contenders, to take the good news out those doors to reach the people who need to hear it. And so Jesus calls us to being contenders. And contenders begin by prayer. Mark Sayers writes in a, a, an excellent book called Reappearing Church, in our age of opinion, social media venting, virtue signaling, and image management, remnants choose a different path to pursue with others in the hidden places. They pursue the eternal perspective to cry and contend, to step into the gap. Their way is prayer, central to renewal cells and remnants in every move of God is the practice of contending prayer. So the question as we seek to be a church for our age, a church that seeks to reach a culture that is drifting away, is how is our prayer life? How is our prayer life? Are we contending in prayer for Lee Summit to be renewed? 
Are we contending in prayer for East Kansas City to be renewed, for Raytown, for Blue Springs to be renewed? Are we contending in prayer or are we waiting and seeing? Jesus goes into a desolate place to invite us to go into a desolate place to commit ourselves to being contenders who are committed to pray. Let me make this absolutely tangible. Who do you need to pray for? What is the name that the Holy Spirit puts on your mind again and again? You need to contend in prayer for that person. So we commit to being contenders, not consumers, but the the second commitment that we need to be disciple makers is that we need to commit to following Christ, not the crowd. We need to commit to following Christ, not the crowd. Now we meet our favorite disciple, Peter. I love Peter. I am Peter. If Jesus were praying... I'd interrupt him just like Peter. I mean, can you, can you imagine just how dull <laughs> Peter is that he finds Jesus, Jesus praying, and what Peter needs is so much more important than what Jesus is doing praying that he says, stop that. I have something for you. And that's kind of that's the, the, the average disciple. That's kind of the average Christian Peter interrupts Jesus. Now, what does Peter want? We've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how how Jesus is remaining focused on his purpose. But what does does Peter want when he comes for Jesus? He certainly does not come to him to join him in prayer, right? That's that's not what he thinks he wants to do. No, what what was so amazing to Peter? What what was the, the thing that Peter last remembers? He remembers a a whole crowd of people at his door the night before. Peter went from a nobody fisherman to the guy who has the house with the guy who heals you. He became a celebrity, right? Peter had the best night of his life watching all of the people in the town come to him, needing him, saying, can we see your friend? And Peter loved it. He experienced more success that one night, more validation that one night than a thousand nights fishing. And his success is completely uh, defined by the fact that a bunch of people were there. You see, Peter's success is numbers. The more people, the more successful I am. And so we need to go back to the crowd. We need to go back to the numbers. We need to repeat that. But the passage is going to show us that there is a great danger if we start thinking that great numbers equal great disciples. Because the passage actually tells us that we will always have fewer disciples 
then we will have people in the crowd. And so Peter is going to be learning that we do not measure our success by the size of the crowd. We must measure our success by making disciples. So Peter actually comes, and the, and the, 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 the text we have says he searched for him. Except the word searched is a little too neutral. The word that Mark uses for searched is used only once in the New Testament. It's used right here. And if you look at how the word is used the majority of the time in the Old Testament, it, and outside of, of, of Scripture, it is used to talk of a person in pursuit, a person actually in the, the, the hunt for somebody. So often it is translated as a person pursuing to, to capture or to hunt something. In fact, a, 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 a use of this word in the Old Testament shows up in Exodus 14.23, where we are told that Pharaoh is going after the Israelites who are escaping. And it says, The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, um, the story that we are here is the, is the splitting of the, of the Red Sea where Moses is leading the people out and now the Egyptians are pursuing them. And we remember the story, the Egyptians are pursuing them to give them one last gift, right? To say, we, just, we, want, we wanted to give you fruitcake. We forgot to give you our fruitcake. No, the Egyptians are pursuing the Israelites to take them in under slavery and bring them back right? That same word for pursued that's being used here, Mark uses to describe Peter's pursuit of Jesus. Peter is not pursuing Jesus to be with Jesus. Peter is pursuing Jesus to put Jesus into his service. He wants to use Jesus to put him back in the middle of the crowd. That's what's going on with Peter. And so here's a key point. When we are about making crowds, we use Christ for our ends. When we are about making disciples, we follow Christ to his ends. I'll say that again. When we are about making crowds, we use Christ for our ends. But when we are about making disciples, we follow Christ to his ends. And his end is not a crowd. It's a cross. Those are vastly different ends. So how do we know who we are following? How do we know whether we are following the crowd or we are following Jesus? Well, there's a, a, in mining, there's kind of this device that miners would use to, to make sure that the air that they were breathing was not too poisonous or too toxic to live in. So what they would use is they would put in a mine a little canary in a cage. And the canary breathes the same air that all of the miners would breathe. And they would watch the canary. If the canary got sick and died, they needed to get out of that tunnel because they were breathing air that was going to kill them. So the, the, the story is... How's the canary doing? My question for you, what is the canary that we have to know whether we are following Christ or following the crowd? 
I believe that Jesus gives us the canary to watch for what we are truly following with our heart in the very first words Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Mark, which are the words, repent and believe. Repent and believe. If we are following the crowd, the words repent and believe become smaller and quieter. There is less in the way we are living our life. There is less in the things that we are doing. There is less in the things that we uh, desire. There is less in the, the ways that we think that are in conflict with the world. And therefore, the words repent and believe kind of fall on deaf ears. If we are following the crowd, repent and believe isn't doing much in our life. But if we are following Christ, the words repent and believe get bigger by the day. Repent and believe starts uh, affecting the, the things that we love to do. It starts affecting the things that we do with our time. It starts affecting the relationships we have. It starts affecting the, the, the things that we entertain ourselves with. It starts affecting the things that we want to do with our day. It starts affecting how we evaluate whether we are living a good life or a bad life. It starts affecting how we think, how we behave, and all that we do. It starts affecting our hope. We start recognizing that our hope is not in this world, it is in Christ alone. And so the words repent and believe are loud, and we hear them every day, everywhere in our life. If we are hearing repent and believe loudly in our life, we are in the tunnel with good air. If in contrast, you hardly ever hear anything in your life receiving the words repent and believe. Your air is toxic. Your canary is dying. So let me ask you, how is your canary? What are you hearing? So we commit to being contenders, not consumers. We commit to following Christ, not the crowd. The third thing that, that Jesus calls us if we want to be disciple makers is that we need to commit to being for others, not ourselves. We need to commit to being for others, not ourselves. So Jesus corrects Peter, who comes to seize Jesus, by declaring afresh his purpose. And we need to hear verse 38 all on its own. Jesus said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus boils down why he is here, why he has come, what he is for into this sentence. This is Jesus' purpose statement. This is what's on his wristband. Right? This is his Lilo. He says that his purpose is to preach the gospel to those who have not heard. Consider this in context. 
Jesus just finished delivering people from, from demons, healing people of every disease, giving people truth that rang afresh in their ears. I mean, think of the, the, the effect of that ministry. I mean, how many of us, all we're really praying about is that somebody would be healed, right? That's, that's the big prayer for most of us, that somebody would be healed or that somebody's mind would be set right. Those are our big prayers. And Jesus' purpose statement says, that's not big enough for why I came. Your being healed of your disease, as big as your disease may be, is not big enough for Jesus' purpose. And the commitment to being a miracle worker, a healer, if he went full bore into that, would actually destroy him accomplishing what is far more important. And what is that? That is the forgiveness of your sins. That is the salvation of your souls. Jesus is setting in one side all of the good things we could imagine happening in this world. Imagine your vote for the next president actually accomplished all the things you thought this world needed. Jesus would say, not good enough for me. I came to give life. I came to ransom sinners from death. That is the size of the gospel. And I think a lot of us put the gospel as maybe not that urgent. What's more urgent is the prayer for the healing. But Jesus says it's the other way around. This gospel that Jesus is committed to preaching is the only way that we can be saved from judgment and live with God. Romans 6.23 lays this in front of us so clearly. What is the gospel? Which is, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, that is why Jesus came. Because every single one of us has accrued the wages of death. What are the wages of death? They are all the things that we have done that our conscience has told us, you shouldn't have done that. They're all the things that you remember at 3 a.m. that said, I can't believe I said that, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that happened, that I was a part of that. The wages of sin are all the times that we loved self more than God. The wages of sin are all the times we chose to lie rather than tell the truth. They're all the times that we allowed our anger to wish the worst for somebody. Those are the wages of sin, and we have accrued mighty debts. But the wages of sin is death. The good news the good news is the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus came to pay for the wages of death. 
that all that has made you guilty in conscience, all that has made you fall short of the glory of God, all that has made you a sinner in this world would be taken away so that then you could have the free gift of eternal life with God. That's why Jesus came. That's the gospel that he is preaching. And in this verse, he is saying the proclaiming of that message is number one because the consequences of that message are the greatest that can be. Now, preach means proclaim. So, I'm not the only one that preaches the gospel. Proclaim. Proclaim is all of our jobs. All of our jobs are to speak the good news, to share the good news, to give the words of good news. And so Jesus says that we need to do that by going to the next towns. Now, he didn't say go to the next towns and huddle up. Going to the next towns is so that new ears could hear. I think we need to recognize that it is easy to reverse this command. It is easy to reverse, go to the next towns, to the words, come to us. Peter wanted to keep the good news in his hometown, right? He wanted Capernaum to be the place that you came. He wanted Peter's house to be the place that you came to hear good news. Come, come to us and hear good news. But Jesus rejects that impulse and says, no, we go. We go to the next towns. You see, when we reverse uh, go with come, we are slightly but seriously turning the gospel back upon ourselves. It is not about reaching others. It is about ourselves. When we replace go with come, we start to turn from caring for others to caring for ourselves. How, how have we seen this happen? Well, when you, when you build a church, all of a sudden, there is a whole bunch of budget that just goes to keeping that building running. And all of that budget really isn't towards evangelism. It is just towards air conditioning. It is just towards keeping the lights on. It is just towards keeping these people who are coming comfortable. Now, I'm not, I'm not arguing against church buildings, but there is a progressive process of more money in a church budget gets moved from going out to taking care of the people who are inside. And that is how a church moves from being for others to for ourselves. When we replace go with come, we start to turn from caring for others to caring for ourselves. The words go is so critical. That is the only way that we will make disciples. If we go back to that data from the Pew Research, and we go back to that uh, information from Chester, where is the front door of the church? Where, where is Christianity going to meet the world? So many of us have the mentality that the front door of the church is the front door of the building. Or maybe it's the website, or maybe it's the small group. But that's a come and see mission, right? But Chester tells us people aren't going to come. Come and see is not going to reach this generation. 
This generation has learned to be happy and content with no gospel in their life. So where is the front door of the church? It's not the door in Capernaum. It's not the door right there. It is not the door of of the thousand churches in our city. The front door of the gospel is you. The front door of the gospel is your home and your life. So what does go look like? The towns of Jesus' day, they were really just small communities. You know what they really were? They were like our neighborhoods. The communities of Jesus' day were going to different neighborhoods and sharing the gospel. Now, verse 38 is basically, basically saying, go out to the next towns, go out to the neighborhoods that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So so consider this. Verse 38 is a script for all of us right here today. Because we have come, we have heard Jesus, and now it is time after we are done to go out to our communities, go out to our neighborhoods, go out to our workplaces, go out to our sports teams, and there is where the people who need to hear are. This is what we do between Sundays. We go to our neighbors, we go to our communities, and Renew EPC is set up for this strategy and this strategy alone. So we have kind of a graphic that we, we, we use in our mind of what we're doing each week. We come to church kind of as an empty white arrow. We gather together. We, we fill ourselves up with the good word, the gospel of Jesus, and we leave with that gospel, that good news, and we take it out. And then if all of us are doing that, the picture looks more like this. We're all going out in different directions to different neighborhoods, meeting different people that the Lord wants us to meet. And what does he want you to do first and foremost? He wants you to share the gospel. He wants you to be the front door of the good news. He wants you to be a disciple who makes disciples. This is our strategy. We renew our faith on Sunday so that you can renew your places during the week. That is what it means when we say we are disciple makers. We are saying that we are contenders, that we are Christ followers, that we are for others. And so when we say we are disciple makers, we are people who go. And the power of this is the power to change the situation in the world today. Acts 17.6 tells us what the first generation of disciple makers did. People saw the first generation of disciple makers and this was their report. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. There were no churches. There was no come and see. The disciples went The disciples went to neighbors and communities and all across the Roman Empire. And within a few years, the reputation of these disciples is the world is turned upside down because of them. Friends, Charles Wesley, or maybe John Wesley, said, if you gave me a hundred people who were on fire to share the gospel, I could reach the world. We don't have a hundred people yet. But I think we have enough people that if we were all committed to being disciple-makers, we can reach Lee Summit. We can reach our neighborhoods. We are disciple-makers. And the ministry 
outside. Let us go and share the good news. Let's pray.